Welcome to another episode of Surgeon's Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Today's uh, guest is nothing short of a legend in the world of surgery. Dr. Barry Salkey was at the very forefront of laparoscopic surgery, not just uh, colorectal surgery, but also general surgery. But he's perhaps best known for uh, being uh, uh, a a giant in the arena of inflammatory bowel disease during his career, a stellar career in Mount Sinai in uh, New York. But there's a lot more to Barry than meets the uh, surgical eye because he's a gourmet, an enormous wine enthusiast and an international traveler. So it's gonna be a real treat to hear his story and uh, tell us some tales about his life. I'm John Monson and this is Surgeon's Lives. How you doing? I'm good, thank you, Barry, and um, thanks for um, thanks for uh, taking some time today to talk to me for um, you know what I hope will be just a, um, a relaxing um, hour or so. Um, our podcast called Surgeons' Lives is, as it says, it is it's about surgeons' lives, but not so much. I mean, obviously, we'll spend uh, some time talking about the. Uh, fame and fortune derived from being a wonderful surgeon, but as much as anything else, it's the other bits, um, which is why I have referred to it as, um, you know, Surgeon's Live, but the stuff that matters, you know? Sure. Well, this is what I'm looking at right now, so it always makes me feel pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you're coming to us, um, beaming to us today from uh, Colorado, is that right? Snowmass Village, Colorado. It's part of Aspen. Yeah, yes. Um it's a wonderful place. So, um let's um if uh, start um in the way that I try and start these by um asking the uh, the lucky winner to um talk to us about um a little bit of a, a brief summary of, you know, your early life um and uh, career which I always ask people to start with the words I was born in. Uh, yeah, well, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, basically a Southern boy, ra- born and raised in, in Memphis. Uh, and really, I, I didn't get out of the South until I went to college, uh, which is at the went to the University of Illinois. It's actually kind of a funny story of how I got to the University of Illinois. Um, my parents were first uh, were not born in the U.S., so I'm a first generation American. And when I went went to high school, uh, getting ready to graduate high school, they really had no idea of what of where I should go. What I had no idea where I should go to college, and they were a little help with that. So uh, they took me to an educational tester, and I took all these tests. and the And the guy tells my parents that I am born to be a chemical engineer. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that uh, armament, I went to the. Uh, uh, I looked around the colleges sometime within a five hundred mile radius of Memphis, and University of Illinois popped up, which was a fantastic uh, engineering school. Uh, and lo and behold, I got into the chemical engineering uh, um, uh, department uh, as a uh, freshman. I was out of it my second semester. It was totally not for me. <laughs> that is for sure. And then I just sort of banged around in, uh, in college uh, until my junior year. I really didn't have no clue about what I really wanted to do. Uh, and... Um, a couple of my uh, friends in uh, college sort of su- suggested, almost on a lark, 
since I took a lot of science courses that maybe I should try pre-med. Uh, and, and at 20 years old, uh, to say that I was suggestible is an understatement. Uh, and I said, sure, why not? So um, I started taking some uh, pre-med courses and lo and behold, I did okay in that and, and kind of liked it. And uh, then I, when it came to graduation, it took me an extra semester to graduate because I needed some extra courses. Um, I went to the University of uh, Tennessee Medical School and uh, I'm from, like I said, from Memphis to begin with and got in as an in-state student and the rest is kind of history of uh, being a doctor. The surgical story is another story, but um, sure. uh, that's how it became. Where, a, and where did your parents come from? Poland. Poland. Yeah. My, my, my mother got, my mother was really an American. She got here when she was, uh, I think around two years old, maybe a little bit less to Shreveport, Louisiana. That's where her family ended up. Uh, so, but she was in essence, an American um, with a Southern accent and all. Uh, my father uh, did not get to the U.S. until his uh, late 20s, um, and that's via seven years in Cuba. Because at the time, this was uh, back in the, uh, just after World War I, uh, right. and they could not uh, get in, he could not get into the, the U.S. then, uh, right. but eventually did. And uh, um, so that's where they came from originally. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you did your medical school in... Um um in um in uh, tennessee university of tennessee medical uh, school that's in memphis the medical units are in memphis i think yeah. they do have a uh, branch now in uh in eastern tennessee in knoxville area but uh, uh yeah it's memphis funny thing was though, just there a weekend and a half ago for a family wedding so kind of went by and saw what's happened to it it's like it is still there but has uh, uh expanded uh quite a bit and you're one of many or uh, or uh, only child or somewhere in between? Oh, sorry. I have an older sister, eight years older, mm -hmm. an older brother who's two years, eight months older, and me. I am the uh, baby of the family. Okay. And so... Um, All the pluses and minuses that go with that, by the way. Sure, sure. So when did surgery first um, hit, you, hit your radar? Um... <clears throat> As a uh, in between the basic sciences and the clinic years at the University of Tennessee, I did sort of an externship between those two things, three months worth in Chicago, uh, uh, and um, I'm trying to get the exact timing of that. Uh, went to went back to Chicago because that's you know went to University of Illinois and a lot of friends there and so I decided to spend uh, three months there, uh, and that's where I got exposed to uh, surgery. Um, yeah. I had an uncle, a, a first cousin, who was chief of staff at the Baptist Memorial Hospital in Memphis. Baptist yeah. Memorial System in Memphis is a huge, yeah, yeah. huge system, uh, and he he was a cardiologist um, and. Um, uh, and chief of staff there is respected and all that sort of stuff. Um, and um, I always assumed that I would kind of follow his path. But um, uh, when I finally got got this chance to do actual do surgery as a third year medical student student with some supervision, very little supervision, I will say back in those days, but some supervision, um, I, it really just uh, like a switch went on in my brain where. Uh, I was really good with my hands or decent with my hands and 
Uh, and the thought process was, is that here was a problem. You could fix it mechanically most of the time. And most of the time, the results would be good. And that was very uh, uh, positive uh, for me. Uh, and that's why I got into surgery. So you didn't have, um, it wasn't as, you know, sometimes people, particularly nowadays, which I'm sure sometimes they download them, but, um, you know, you often see these personal statements of, you know, a vision appearing in front of the person, you know, that a surgeon appeared, you know, with a, a glittering halo around them and the day was saved and they knew they had to be a surgeon or something. It wasn't quite like that. It was more. I would say for me, I was the antithesis of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I say that I really got into medicine on a lark, I'm really not kidding. Yeah. Um, in college, um, the university, I mean, I was always a decent student, but I really had just, I knew what I didn't want to be. That I knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I was sure of. But I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be. And so, uh, as it turns out, uh, it was good for me. But but I, I tell you, there was a lot of luck in that. Um, so where did you do your residency? Uh, Mount Sinai, New York. Um, that's a whole other story. So, the only thing I knew, first of all, the only thing I knew that I, I wanted to try a different uh, region. I wanted to get out of the South uh, and see what uh, the rest of the world was like. Um, by the time I was a senior in medical school, um, and by the way, we were on the quarter system. So University of Tennessee was three years, three months total school. It wasn't a four-year program. Right. And... Um, uh, I met my wife three months before we got married. It was a whole deal for three months. Uh, she's still my wife as a 52 years worth. Uh, once again, totally luck, really. Uh, but um, uh, she had some influence in terms of where we were going to end up because I, I knew I wanted to end up in a big city. Um, and I applied to several big cities. Uh, and actually, I mean, the truth was, is that I was sort of hooked in to um, Michael Reese in Chicago uh, back in this. This was in the 70s. So this is this is different. Michael Reese at that point was a going concern, had a strong research component. Uh, the chief of surgery at that time, there was a guy by the name of Jerry Peskin, Gerald Peskin, um, really good guy. Um uh, and that's where he liked me as I spent the three months there and, and was going to offer me a, um, a slot in the matching program. Yeah. Right? I knew about him And then, uh, about two months before that was all coming down, he called and says, you better look elsewhere. The building, the, the hospital system has been sold. The, uh, uh, Michael Reese will not be the same, uh, as you saw it. You better find another place. So I kind of scrambled, and the other part I liked it very well also was Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, and unfortunately, I matched there, and that's where I, I ended up. But it was pretty, could have been somewhere um, else very easily. Pretty decent of him to call you, actually. I mean, oh, I, totally. You know, totally. Because it would have really, I would have been there for a uh, year. That would have been it. I'd have yeah. been out of there. So Mount Sinai, and um, did you ever leave? No. At Mount Sinai? Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah, I was in the army for two years. Oh, okay. Right. U.S. Right. Army. Yes. <laughs> With an honorable discharge. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I'm one of the few people around 
who have who are in academia, yeah. uh, who stayed at the same institution. Um, I, I did my training there. I got an offer uh, when I was in the army to come back there and finish my training. Uh, they had a pyramidal program at the time, right. so it wasn't a guarantee. That totally since changed now, of course. Yes. Uh, but, uh, so I got a chance to uh, be the uh, be uh, the chief resident, which I which I was. Um, and then uh, when I finished my the program there, um, I always assumed that I would go back to Memphis. My right. whole family is there. Yeah, my wife's family was there. Um, I just never thought that I would stay in another place. Um, and then uh, during my chief residency, I got an offer from a private practice group at uh, Sinai that was just uh, unbelievable. They were they were academically oriented, but in private practice, uh, it was the best of both worlds. They had a incredibly strong IBD component to their practice. Almost fifty percent of their component their surgery was inflammatory bowel disease, which uh, clearly was a very challenging type of uh, surgery. Um, yeah. and, um, uh, so I got that offer and we ended up staying in New York and I've been in New York ever since only in Mount Sinai, but in a variety of different uh, um, positions at Sinai, both yeah. on the voluntary side and on the uh, full-time side. And at that time, what were you um, calling yourself? Uh, to people, were you calling yourself a general surgeon, an IBD surgeon? Uh, what you know, it, as you, as we mentioned, you know, it was a different era then for a start. When I, when I finished training, I was a general surgeon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Clearly, I had. Um, Did you have a vision? Funny story, also, because the last thing Mount Sinai needed was another general surgeon. There were a lot of them there. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of good ones there too. There were. Yeah. Significant number of not so good ones, but there were a lot of good ones there. Um, the the group that I joined uh, that asked me to join, they were all technically terrific surgeons. I mean, you know, I saw them during my residency as I was training, and, yeah. and almost all of us wanted to emulate the type of surgeries that they did because they were yeah. they were just super technicians, you know, and and always a, a patient first type things. So. Um, uh, it was very, very cool to be that, but to be asked, and of course I accepted, but, um, that so what, is, um, what year is this now? I graduated in 1978, 78. Um, I graduated from your residency, my yeah. residency. I finished my training in 1970. I started in 1971, but I finished in 78 cause I had two years in the army from yeah. 73, 75 from the Vietnam war business. So 79, 80, 81, 82, et cetera, what, what were your operations um, in those days? I, so that actually is the, probably the most important segue into what I did when I was actively operating. So like, like, like I said, the last thing they needed was another general surgeon. So... This was in the days where sonography had just begun. Yeah. CT scan was not in, on the horizon, mm -hmm. certainly not MR. Um, the only thing they really had for evaluation of liver pathology was a liver spleen scan, mm -hmm. which, of course, was the flow scan. So it really didn't give a lot of yeah. uh, information about what was going on. It was either a defect or there was no defect. Um, and because of that, one of the gastroenterologists at Sinai suggested 
an older gastroenterologist actually, experience said, why don't you learn how to do diagnostic laparoscopy? That could, we could really use someone who knows what they're doing. And the reason that they said that because there was a gastroenterologist at Sinai who knew how to do laparoscopy. It was awful. Not only was it technically difficult in getting it in, actually most of the time he did get it in, but his interpretation of what he was looking at was off the wall. So, and the surgeon he had backing him up was one of those guys who uh, had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> so it was, it was not a good combination. Really, it's, it's true story. I mentioned no names, but that's what it was. <laughs> so I learned how to do diagnostic laparoscopy from H. Worth Boyce Jr. He uh, was uh, the chief of uh, gastroenterology uh, GI at the uh, University of uh, South Florida in Tampa. Really good guy. We kind of bonded a lot because he was a, a lifetime uh, colonel in the uh, in the army, and I had done my you know two years in the army, so kind of liked me to begin with. Yeah, uh, and I learned how to do diagnostic laparoscopy under local anesthesia, <laughs> nitrous oxide as the insufflation gas of choice, uh, low flow insufflators, one liter per minute. They didn't have the high flow machines at that point, um, and um, that's how I learned how to do laparoscopy. And it's by the time, of, just to, I, I mean, you, I'm sure you'll have other questions, but from the time I learned that in 79 until uh, until Lap Coley came on the field, yeah. I had already done 1,000 diagnostic laparoscopies, mm-hmm. including some appendectomies that under direct vision and, I mean, crazy stuff, draining drainage of that, because I was a surgeon. Yeah. Some maybe abscesses, splenic cysts, you know, Things that were more therapeutic, but only with a direct view, no camera attached. We had a teaching scope because I was teaching residents how to do this stuff. So that's how it all started. So that was my my expertise when I finished my training was at one year was uh, diagnostic laparoscopy. It's it's intriguing. Of course, as you know, I'm far, far, far younger than you, Um, but... um, when when I was in Leeds, I will still talk to you. It's okay. <laughs> so in 1983, I left Ireland and went to Leeds, and I worked with a general surgeon um, who did diagnostic laparoscopy under local anaesthetic. Oh, cool! Who was that? Um, the late and and really great Tom Brennan was his name. He uh, he was in St James's in Leeds and. He worked as partners with Jeff Giles, the late Jeff Giles, um, you know, who's the chair of surgery. But so he taught me how to do local anesthetic, um, you know, and the getting the patient to count one, two and three and cough, you know, with oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. needle and all of that sort of stuff. And and we did we did this mostly for we um sounds as though we weren't as adventurous as you um but we you know we were doing liver biopsies and biopsies of us you know ascites and stuff like that etc oh, yeah. so the the key and, I, and i'm guessing you'll probably agree with me that when you know at the end of that decade and when video laparoscopy came along the one thing that i had that you had that other surgeons didn't have was i knew how to put the ports into the patient Clearly. And so, you know, one of the biggest problems that's that general and other surgeons had at the beginning of video laparoscopy was they didn't know how to put the ports in or, or insufflate the patient. And, you know, there was a lot that caused lots of trouble 
um, oh as, as you recall. So it was very interesting. And um, the only the only uh, take home lesson I learned from that is that you most definitely should not do a true cut liver biopsy on a patient laparoscopically and forget to put the local anesthetic in the skin. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that, that definitely is not a good idea. <laughs> so sure. I did. I did do that once. So he, I mean, he obviously, gastroenterologist, was obviously one of your first mentors. Did you, you know, you must have had other mentors throughout your career. Oh, clearly. Um, most of them. So what, what's kind of interesting is, is that besides the diagnostic um, laparoscopy that I was doing a lot of, um, the other two things I did a lot of were number one was breast surgery okay. for some reason i just ended up doing a lot of that within this practice and the other part of it was the ibd yeah so and the ibd component as it turned out really was a major input for me uh, in terms of how my practice would evolve over the years and most of those mentors were gastroenterologists yeah mm and well-known gastroenterologists in the field of IBD. I mean, yes. um, I mean, everybody would recognize their names and, you know, and, it, and they were very, very uh, helpful and they were very promoting of me uh, because of this laparoscopy viewpoint that I had. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, it really uh, was unbelievably helpful in terms of how my practice evolved over the, over the uh, years between the, of course, there were surgical mentors. My two, my three partners, especially two of them. Uh, I mean, you know, if I could operate like them, I would be very, very happy. You know, patients would be very happy because the results were very good. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, did you in, did you fall into mentors, or did were you intentional about it? Um, you know, did I fall into what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Did you fall into a mentor relationship with them as a mentee or did you, were you intentional about seeking out mentors? I mean, it's one of the questions that younger surgeons ask now, you know, how do I find a mentor? Um, you know, what, what do you say to them when they ask you that? It's really, I never thought about that too much, but it's, it's interesting where I was. So Mount Sinai at that time was almost all voluntary the full-time system at sinai at that point mm -hmm. now now it's totally reversed but at that point was uh was full-time so to say that the private practice of surgery was competitive in new york city would be a gross understatement so most of the surgeons while they were happy to have mm -hmm. you assist uh, and do some things on, on the patients. Um, they were not very promoting. Mm. And I can say this is true, not only at Sinai. I mean, I had friends at New York Hospital and at, at, uh, at Presbyterian. And, you know, it was basically the same. It was just the milieu was totally different. Uh, yeah. It was a um, very competitive environment. So most of the, um, it would have be, been really, really hard to ask a specific surgeon to mentor me. Saying that, the fact that I was asked to join this private practice group, I did have that. I mean, and it came yeah. with a package. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it came with the package in a big way, uh, especially if if a very complex case 
fell into my lap. The first people I went to were my partners that, you know, I need some help here. I mean, you know, this is, yeah. Yeah. And, and they were very, very good about doing that. So, but the, so the, but it wasn't a general mentorship. The gastroenterologists, on the other hand, since I wasn't competition to them, because yeah, yeah. we were not allowed to do flexible endoscopy. Surgeons were, at that point in time, were not allowed to do that. Um, and we were absolutely zero uh, competition. And they were very uh, forthcoming with helping. So, uh, you, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you tell a story of a truism in human life, you know, um, you know, people say, I love competition, you know, but that usually is somebody who doesn't have any competition who's saying that. But, um, uh, you know, the the issue of um, of that competitive nature, um, uh, which is inevitable in any sort of in an eat what you kill model. Um, do you think that's a good thing or I mean, it has some good elements to it, obviously. But and it has changed over the years with the transition to a lot of lot more employed models. But I mean that competitive market. You know, the late Gore Vidal once said, um, you know, every time a friend of mine succeeds, a little something inside me dies. Um, you know, is that a good thing for surgery? Interesting question. You know, I've always kind of marvelled at the. Uh... The fact that we who are training people to do surgery are training our competitors. And yeah. it always, you know, and I've always understood that. Um, and you could actually take that a step further in terms of reimbursements for surgeons. I mean, there's no difference really from an insurance perspective of someone who's just finished his training, who's out Thank 25 you. years, who's got all the experience in the world. And I mean, that's not the real world other than medicine or yeah. especially other than surgery so and, and, and uh, just one small point because i've been having this conversation recently it's it's not universal in surgery either for example plastic surgeons do very much charge what they think they're worth rather absolutely. than you know so it's it's just us dummies in gi surgery that get you know the same rate um so that's it. If you'll ask me that question a little bit later, I think I'll have a little contrarian view of what you just said. But because um, because mine was a little bit different, how I approached the uh, private the, yeah. the practice of surgery, the the actual economics of, of of surgery, of which nobody teaches anybody when they're training, which no. is a big, that's a big problem, a whole different problem. Yeah, uh, from our perspective, I think that's a big mistake that we do. Um, but anyway. Um, so, so when did you, um, uh, you know, you were um, getting into your stride, if you like, um, you know, when I first heard of you and we were both, um, you know, playing around with advanced laparoscopic procedures and, uh, you know, operations that were nobody really knew what we were doing in terms of who was the ideal case. And, you know, there was the port site metastasis argument and all of that sort of stuff. Um, was there, and, and, you know, at that time, there were all sorts of laparoscopic stars suddenly appeared, you know, Eddie Joe Reddick and, you know, and people following on from there. Um, you know, um, 
did you again were you intentional about that or just did you wake up one day and suddenly discover hey i've been doing this for years guys um i'm an overnight sensation who's been doing it for a decade you know um how did that morph for you okay so yeah i went i had a large i kind of divided things between the early days diagnostic laparoscopy, mm -hmm. then the early days of therapeutic laparoscopy, and then maybe five or six years after that when therapeutic, really advanced therapeutic laparoscopy yeah. started to take off. And for me, uh, those were definitely different times. Yeah. Um, so let me take the be the beginning of it. Uh, uh, so my, my, my transition occurred from 79 to when I did my first uh, lap coli, which was in... Uh, uh, January of, uh, 90. Yeah. Mm -hmm. January of 90. And, um, actually the funny thing is, is that I'd always, all the presentations that I made in terms of laparoscopy, diagnostic laparoscopy were done through the American society of gastrointestinal endoscopy, ASGE, because the surgical societies, mm -hmm. all which I were members of, including SSAT, had no interest in diagnostic laparoscopy at that time. I mean, none. Many times I tried to get something on, and I was doing some really interesting stuff in the, in the, in the 80s. I was doing retroperitoneal biopsies in the mid-80s, lapar laparoscopically, and saving people major laparotomies for making diagnosis of lymphoma, which wasn't, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and this is things that surgeons really need to know, but they, they wouldn't accept it. So it was a different time period. Um, when I originally learned how to do the uh, lap coli, which was in lap, uh, late 89 in France, um, and I came back to, to start doing it. And once I started doing that, it was very obvious to me after the second, third case yeah. that this technology was going to revolutionize surgery. I mean, I, I, it was pretty. So I didn't just, I, I did just fall into laparoscopy, sort of. But once I fell into it, it was clear to me that this was a technology that was going to happen. Um, uh, and some of the early, the stuff in the late 80s, actually, uh, I got approached by Olympus Corporation. But this is what I think it was in, I want to say, 87, 88. This was at the time when the lithotripsy was make, trying to make a, a, yeah. a run at treating gallstones. Yeah. And we were trying to come up with a way of accessing the gallbladder to block the cystic duct so that you could do lithotripsy. And not have this the stone fragments go into the bile duct and cause cholangitis. I mean, it was like things that were crazy stuff that we were trying to do. So, uh, uh, so the the first the answer to your question basically is yes. I sought this. I, I went looking for it. Um, once I knew that lap diagnostic laparoscopy or the technique of laparoscopy really was good. I mean, yeah. really good patients um, and. Uh, so that was the first part of it. So that I would put that at around uh, 89, 90 type thing. From 90 to 93, 94, uh, we were, um, there was a small group of people who were doing lots mm -hmm. of this stuff. I mean, I, I can go through all the names, but you know, no, uh, I was lucky to be part of that group. Yeah. Phillips, uh, Morris Franklin, I mean, yeah. Barry McKernan, there, there were a whole, you know, a few of us who were like going crazy with the stuff because we knew what it was going to advance to. 
we knew that it was going to advance exactly how far we none of us had any idea that it was going to do what it did um but um uh, that part of it was <laughs> very very exciting because every day or at least maybe three or four times a week we would all talk to each other and tell us tell each other what we were doing you did it you did a necrotic gallbladder did you do a necrotic gallbladder you know yeah. You know that that type of thing. You, you know, there was a Maritzi, but what are you talking about? You can't do that. You know, so <clears throat> crazy stuff that was that we were trying to to learn about. So, including uh, back in, in really in the early nineties when uh, colon stuff started started. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we were all like crazed about what was going to happen. It was clear to me at that point that this was going to revolutionize. How much the revolution we didn't know, but it was going to revolutionize the people the way people were doing surgery. So, yeah, it was a big, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I was laughing at the lithotripsy because around that time, my research fellow was a guy called Ara Darzi. Um, <laughs> I know it very well. <laughs> yeah. And um, I went to London and, um, you know, cystectomy was a private practice operation and we were in Imperial College, so you didn't have hundreds of gallbladders. So we were looking for something to do because, like you, we realized that this was not going to go away. So we made a bet with two guys that we could take all the appendixes out in a year for acute appendicitis. You didn't, you could do them all laparoscopically. And um, I vividly remember on a on a Friday spending about two hours trying to find a perforated retrocecal appendix in a young man, and which I eventually did and took out. And I vividly remember saying to Ara, because we used to do them all together. Um, um, you know, I was a young attending and he was my fellow at that stage. Um, I said, you know, you could take somebody's colon out doing this um, because I'd mobilized the whole right colon. And... On the uh, you know on the following Wednesday I did um, take I went and took a guy's right colon out, um, which um, uh, Ara tells me was the first one in the UK. But the point being, every day was something new um, they were doing, and uh, you know I took a lot of um, I think the word would be a, a criticism or critique from the establishment and the colorectal society saying, you know, you should stop this. You shouldn't be doing this. It's not safe. And, you know, I remember saying to them, you know, I, I, I've done cases where you can tell instantly. There's no way any open case would ever have recovered like that. That's not the question. The question is, how do you do that result in everyone? You know, yeah, you got it there, you know. And I, I vividly remember being in an argument with St. Mark's Hospital um, and um, they said, you should stop it because it's not good enough. I said, did you, do you think people said that to Sir Alan Parks when he did the first three pouches? You know, uh, it's they sure as hell didn't go that well, you know. But now well, I, it's... I, I remember I remember like yesterday when I told uh, I told I asked my chief of surgery. Well, I told him I was going to go learn how I was private practice. He was full time. And his name was Arthur Alfsis. He's since passed away. He was a really good guy and promoted everything once we realized what was going on. But he said, you can go look. No problem. But if you think you're going to be doing one here anytime in the near future, you are crazy. 
Yeah. So I went and looked and I came back, you know, and I told him, I said, Arthur, this is really something that we have to do. This is really good for patients. So, you know, he eventually came around and did some lab stuff and then, and, and, you know, did the, uh, the surgery and, the, and it worked fine. So uh, that, that was one point. But it was the years between when I first started doing gallbladders and some of the advanced stuff, I got to tell you, and I'm sure you'll agree, those were the most exciting times from a surgical perspective that you could ever imagine because I mean, it was just so crystal clear that all this stuff, even with the pushback from academia and even with the pushback in port site metastasis and all the things mm-hmm. that clearly had to be sorted out, but there was no question that this was all going to happen because it was so good for patients. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, I have a slide that I show that the three phases of minimally invasive surgery operations. You know, the first one is that can't be done. The second is that shouldn't be done. And the third is I can do that. Um, you know, and, and the truth, um, what I often say to people, there was a phase you remember where people said, no, no, I don't want my operation done laparoscopically because it was, it was a lot of media about danger and stuff like that. And there were patients saying, I absolutely do want it. But what I always say to people, I've never in my life had a patient say to me, could I have a really, really big incision, please? You know, that's that's what I want. You know, nobody says that. You know? well, the only people who said that were the surgeons. Who yes. Did laparoscopic <laughs> surgery who said that there is only one way you can get this done, and that's through an incision. You're crazy if you go have it done laparoscopic. A lot of that, too. So I described in my little introduction to this, which um, you'll only hear when it goes out, um, but not very lengthy, but I described you as a, an international traveler and something of a bon viveur. Um, <laughs> Moi, je parle français, so je comprends. <laughs> so um, so uh, tell me that story. How did that come about? I mean, there you were busting your guts in uh, Mount Sinai, making a living and doing very well and, um, you know, had you always been a traveler or or, no. or what? Mm-hmm. No. It, it, it happened because of laparoscopic surgery, yeah, yeah. clearly. Uh, and the initial entree into that came from gastroenterologist, right. not from surgeon. Mm-hmm. So there was a very well-known, uh, Jerry Way, I'm yeah. sure mm-hmm. So he's a very good gastroenterologist in private practice at Sinai, but had an international reputation, was going all over the place, doing all these innovative stuff in terms of colonoscopy because he was one of the originators of colonoscopy. Yeah. So he had a good friend in uh, Chile and a gastroenterologist. And they, the, he was friendly with uh, some of the surgeons at the uh, university there in, in the private practice thing. And they, and he asked way Jerry way who could come down and, teach the surgeons how to do laparoscopic surgery uh, and, and gallbladders. And actually it was just gallbladders. And now that I think mm-hmm. about it, and um, he gave them my name. So that was my first invitation. That was in 1990. Um, and that really opened my eyes to the fact that a number one, there are a lot of talented surgeons out there. Yeah. They're not only in the U S that was number one. Number two, there are different viewpoints of how to approach patients. And more importantly to me, because speaking of the bon vivant, 
was that there are a lot of different ways that your life can be lived that can be cooperative, that can be productive, and it's a different viewpoint than you have in the U.S. Uh, And that was really, really important to me. And it opened my eyes. Um, And so that got, you know, so once that started, um, there were other invitations that came from different places. India was one of the early ones. Um, which is why I've been there 20 times, um, and uh, France as well, because when I learned how to do this from Jacques Parissat, yeah, uh, and um, and oh my God, what's going to have in my brain? Who's the guy in, in Paris? Uh, wonderful uh, surgeon who did lab co I just can't think of his name. Uh, right? um, yeah, who was in Hotel Deux. Um, um, it, it, yeah. it will come to me, because... Yeah. He was he was another one of the, my ment- the mentors who told me how to do Lab Coley. Um, uh, I had a deep connection to France. Uh, yeah. So a lot of that happened from there. And then, of course, the companies got involved in my association, uh, not to mention, well, then my association was with Ethicon, not with uh, U.S. Surgical. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, which I cannot go into. But um, uh, that's how the international stuff happened. So lucky me. Very lucky me. I got to see how other people lived, other cultures. Um, it really made me understand um, maybe I should have some political leanings because of there was there, there are a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Yeah, uh, unbelievably important to me. Re- and to this day, I will say, um, it, it affects the way that I think. Uh, it affects my relationship with the. Uh, not only my my colleagues here in the U.S., but also abroad, and it's uh, it's it's very very important. A lot of the U.S. surgeons, a lot of the U.S. people in general, but especially mm-hmm. U.S. Uh, uh, surgeons, uh, live in a bubble, and they don't yeah. realize that there mm-hmm. are other ways, and there are other people, and there are other ideas. And it's very very it was really great for my 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 practice of surgery. It made me a much much better surgeon. It's, it's to me as 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 an immigrant. Um, it, it's it's always been strange to me that that Americans who think nothing of spending you know going on a road trip of ten, twenty, thirty hours um, uh, are aghast at the possibility of going somewhere called not America, um, and it, and it's it's not a good thing. I mean it's. You know they would. They're not good travelers internationally, and the trainees traditionally, of course, they've never had to, because it's a big country and you can achieve most things. You know, somewhere you'll find somewhere that's a, a, a place that offers you the best of this and the best of that. So you don't really, you know, if you if you come from Ireland, um, you know, it's a pretty small country. Um, you you got to leave. You know, everybody was known to. Irish trainees had to do BT, BTA, you know, been to America and um, BTE, been, be, been to England, um, you know, because it's just a small country. You can't train there. Um, and I, I do think uh, you're right. I mean, you learn you, the world is the world is very different to what you think it is. And uh, and, uh, you know, the only way to find that out is to get out and see it. And of course, some of it's. Some of it's as, as bad as you see in America, you know. Oh. You know? <laughs> there's all kinds of surgery, as you know well. 
Yeah, yeah very so, much so. But it, I, I think you know, back in the night in the nineties, two thousand, it, it was um, um, it wasn't so common. I think nowadays it's changed pretty yeah. a fair amount. That there's a you know a lot of cross pollination for sure. Uh, I don't think there can ever be too much cross pollination. Honestly, I, re I really no, um, it's interesting. You know, back in the nineties, as you say, um, traveling was. Um, certainly being there was, but tra traveling was almost enjoyable. Um, it, it's the actual process of traveling now is not enjoyable. Um, and it's, it's not just down to, um, to COVID. I mean, it's, it's, it's just become less enjoyable. And of really? course, um, and of course, you know, what COVID has done is produced all these hybrid things. And I mean, they're great if I want to interview Barry Salky, who's in Colorado, but, you know, not really if you want to interact with people. I mean, it's not the same at all. Um, so your interest in um, uh, in um, gastronomy, um, food and wine, have you always been a foodie or a, uh, a wine uh, uh, enthusiast? No, no. Well, um, but I did grow into it. And once I did grow into it, I grew into it pretty well, I think. <laughs> um, uh, the food business was because my wife is a terrific cook. Right. Okay. So that was the start of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but the traveling was yeah. really keyed me into the food. The, I mean, that was a part we don't really talk about too much. We, you know, we talk about teaching surgery, somebody teaching me what to do, what not to do. We saw all that stuff uh, on the international travel, but a lot of it, you know, we were entertained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I say we, I was also very, very lucky that my wife traveled with me. She almost never stayed home. Uh, and that was, uh, we've met, uh, you know, and become friends with people all over the world because of that. But a lot of that, after you did your work, had to do with the uh, food and and, uh, and wine. And uh, I was a sponge. Yeah. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I, to this day, I still do. Yeah, and you know, if if you have the good fortune, of course, to bump into people like George Fielding, mm -hmm. you know, you you cannot um, emerge from that experience without um, uh, you know an even greater passion for wine, for example, and food. And he, he is, uh, you know, naturally um, one of the uh, surgeons who appears on surgeons' lives. You know. He's uh, totally uh, passionate about food and the wine as he was with uh, surgery. Totally passionate. It's great. Yeah. A lot uh, of people, some people, you know, some people, especially in America, thought it was really kind of pretentious to uh, to to uh, go crazy over, over things like that. But, you know, it's it's an for me and my wife and my children, by the way, now it's one of the essential pleasures. I mean, we they work yeah. hard. But afterwards, there's no reason why you can't enjoy the fruits of your sure, labor. Sure. One of those things besides family would be food and uh, wine. So um, are you, would you describe yourself as retired? Retired? Yes. I'm retired from the clinical practice of surgery. I'm not operating on anybody anymore. Okay. I'm not retired. That is for sure. I'm trying to de develop a device, um, a surgical device. Uh, I have a business partner uh, and we consult for several uh, uh, startups uh, trying to get them going um, and uh, yeah we're busy with that good yeah it's, how uh, did you decide to stop 
um, operating. I, I've, I, I've a number of I've interviewed a whole bunch of people for this, obviously, and um, several people have said um, that they mostly people of a more senior nature um, have said that um, they're intrigued by the, the suggestion that um, you know surgeons after an age, whatever that age might be, sixty, for example should undergo um, voluntary cognitive and motor testing, non-punitive. Um, um, what's your thinking on that? I think that's a little BS, uh, to be honest with you. Um, for me, and everybody's a little bit different, but for me, I mean, I stopped, I retired from the active practice of surgery when I was 73. Um, I thought, let me take it back a step. I had several independent people. I asked not only the chief of surgery, he had to do it as his job. Yeah. But I had other people watching me to make sure that I wasn't doing crazy things and that my results were still as good as they ever yeah. were. Uh, and I think that's an important part of uh, knowing when it's time to stop because you actually, I don't think, know when it's time to stop from a technical perspective. It's it, Unless there's some disaster out of the, out of the blue, but you, were you, you were you were you more interested or worried or concerned about doing crazy things or just doing what you used to do but doing it badly? Combination. Yeah. I mean, for me, from the beginning, it was all about patient care. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my results were good. Uh, I had low complication rates. Had low infection rates, uh, and it was very, very important to me that 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 type of thing continue. The other thing was is that I had seen people uh, being asked—I shouldn't say asked—being told that they have to stop. That mm -hmm. was not going to happen to me. That's one yeah. of the reasons I put a couple of people to watch me. Um, I gave up being chief of the division. Uh, of a laparoscopic surgery at Sinai in 09. Uh, so I stayed on after that, but purely it's just on the clinical uh, aspects. Yeah. I tried my damnedest not to interfere with the chief of laparoscopic surgery uh, that, that replaced me. I mean, the last thing I would want is someone to be looking over my back and telling me what to do. So I tried to, I, I tried, I did stay out of the um, administrative arm of, uh, of the Department of Surgery and just to do surgery. So, which gets back a little bit in terms of why did I stop? Um, a little bit about the economics of uh, surgery. Um, <laughs> it, it's really kind of interesting. When I was out two years at Sinai, this right. was at the beginning of uh, managed care. And there was a man, I won't, I'm not going to mention the name. Yeah, that's probably not a good idea. There was a managed care company that made a presentation to Sana that they were going to increase our patient load by somewhere between 25 and 30%. Uh, you were going to be busy as you can be. The only thing you had to do was to uh, take as payment in full what they were going to offer and they were going to offer a little bit less, I think it was around 10, 50% less than the yeah. standard fees that were out there. I'm not even sure it may have been based on Medicare at the time, but Medicare yeah. at that time was, was decent, a long time ago. Um, and so I had a simple question. I, wanted, I don't even remember what the question was because it's not important now. 
but he was the the CEO was inundated by questions, and at the end, I found him and I said, "Excuse me, I really I want to ask you a question." He turned me; he was like crazed for something. He turned around to me and he said to my face, "Doctor, I don't care if you do if you join this or not. This is going to happen. We don't really care about you. We only care about what's going to happen." in terms of medical care and how that's going to be progressed. And I looked at him like he was crazy. But from that point on, it was pretty clear to me that insurance companies are not on doctor's side. Oh, no. no. And I never, I mean, it was a firsthand experience. And since that time, I never participated with an insurance company from the beginning. So um, in that category of I don't take insurance. Correct. Yeah. So I... I had, and as things evolved, I had my fees, which yeah. I thought were what the fees should be. Yeah. And that's what I charged. And I didn't uh, accept, uh, and some of the insurance companies were great and they paid it, you know, fine, but others were lousy. Yeah. So yeah. patients had to pay the difference or I negotiated with them in some way, manner, shape or fashion, but I never so participated. A, I mean, that's a... I'm sure it's not exclusively so, but it, it's um, it's a heavily New York thing that um, it's you know it's not it's not widely replicated around the country and um, you know so that's great you know um, you were able but, to, but you know, I think there there's I personally think there are some reasons for that yeah and a lot of those reasons that are are were sort of out of the control of the physician. Um, physicians have been told, and it also has to do with the economics of how uh, hospitals get paid and more full-time people versus yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know people who, who were full-time in the institution and other ones who are in private practice. So it, it makes a difference. But it's not dissimilar from hearing news over and over and once you hear it over and over and over again you begin to believe what you're being told yeah. and yeah. physicians are being told that this is the way you have to do it and and that's participating with insurance companies uh or yeah. you, know, you know once the insurance comp once it was agreed that insurance companies were allowed to be for profit um uh, you know i think that was an enormously retrograde step um, and it, it's 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 never been in the interest of the patients or the doctors. Um, totally. You know that's a problem. Um, um, if you you know when you're in a system where the, the 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 payers don't care about the either the recipient or the deliverer of the care, um, it's 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 a bit of an issue. It's a it's a problem. So that that was part of the the issue. Um, and you know, and uh, even though. I mean, I was still operating when I was at, at 73, but it just something in my brain said, you know what? It's time. I had a lot of other interests. Um, you believe in the yeah, grandchildren. I like to play golf. I like to eat and drink. Uh, I love it out here in Colorado. And it, it was just time. And Yeah, a friend of mine just retired. Uh, and he said, you know, when you've had enough and have enough, that's the time to retire, um, you know. And uh, it's not an unreasonable statement. Um, right. And by the way, I was able to sort of uh, insulate myself a little bit from the administrative stuff that a lot of people complain about. That, that really yeah. wasn't my issue. 
I, I had people who did that for me. So it yeah. really wasn't my issue. It was just, it was time. So uh, how, how much of the year are you spending in Colorado now? I'm sorry, say again, I didn't hear it. How much of the year do you oh, spend in Colorado? So we're here, I would say about eight and a half, nine months of the year. And the oh, most of, of it. Most so of, most yeah. of the time, but rest of the time we base ourselves out of New York. Sure. But we're still doing a lot of traveling. Yeah. There's still uh, um, some uh, uh, some of the surgical societies like to have me a couple times a year in the Senate. I don't know why, but they do. Uh, I still have some. Uh, Who are you to deny them such an honor? You know? <laughs> uh, and, so, um, any bucket list items uh, that um, are on, uh, there for you to achieve? Well, my, 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 my general goal is to play golf in every country in the world. So I'm yeah. working my way through that. How, how far are you? A, um, you know, I actually haven't counted, but I'm, I'm pretty far along. Um, I play in almost every, uh, every place I get get invited to or, or I travel to, I throw in a round of golf somewhere along my line. Do you, uh, do you bring, are you like Ratner? You bring the clubs or do you rent them? Uh, Ratner has been trying to emulate me on, from golf for a long period of time. <laughs> um, I, okay, I Barry, listen. Um, and I have a similar concept there. I, I finished this, um, I finished this conversation by, um, uh, just a series of um, snappy questions, uh, cheesy questions are not particularly innovative. There is no right or wrong answer to them, other than the fact that I know what the right answer is. Um, <laughs> and uh, you don't get a chance to uh, think about it. I just need an immediate answer, please. Are we ready to go? I'll try. Okay. Baseball or football? Oh, football. Uh, Coke or Pepsi? Coke. A Mac or PC? Oh, P Mac. Not even close. I've never owned a PC. <laughs> Cats or dogs? I didn't hear that. Cats or dogs? Uh, even. Even. Ooh. I like pets. A Burger King or McDonald's? Uh, McDonald's. Uh, I think I know the answer. This beer or wine? Wine. Home or away? Home. Okay, Barry, thank you very much for your time. It's really appreciated. Um, we will be um, releasing these um, conversations to the assembled millions who are waiting with bated breath. Um, I'm, so, I, want, I want to hear who else you're talking to, and I can't wait to listen to them. Yeah, well, you'll see. Um, we've, um, uh, I've, I've, in locked in the bank right now are um, about uh, 15 of them done. Um, and I'm probably going to be releasing them maybe um, twice a month. Um, they all run about an hour. Um, I think in the little, um, in the little preamble I did for the, to set up the podcast, as I point out, um, it's a full range from around the world um it's not just us um uh, there is a surgeon who lives in the midwest who started collecting cars when he, in his first year in private practice and he now has 83 cars which oh, wow. he which he uses for um for charitable events to support his home community um i i just interviewed a surgeon um who he and his wife sold their house and bought a catamaran on or two years into 
um, their sailing journey around the world. Um, Talk about um, a bucket list item. That's great. Yeah. I, yes. He said to me, um, I'd like to, um, I think we should, I'm about, uh, when I get through the Panama Canal, let's do the interview. He said, before I cross the Pacific, I said, yes, let's do that. Um, just be, just in case. <laughs> and I didn't even get to talk about skiing, but so, you know, it's, that's... Yeah. So, well, I should ask you that question. Um, how, um, how were, you know, Memphis is not well known for skiing um, and <laughs> New York, of course, is, but it's not quite, um, it's not uh, quite uh, Vail or whatever. Where did that come about? Uh, my, my wife had been to Aspen once when she was in University of Illinois. In fact, that's part of the reason that I met her and married her. Because she was out here and she uh, did her medial collateral ligament and then came home to mommy and daddy in a uh, cast. And okay. that's where I kind of picked her up. Uh, so, um, uh, and I had never been skiing before in my life. And we decided we would go uh, after I'd met her for like uh, six weeks. She said, let's go skiing. I said, sure, why not? So, um, <laughs> uh, we decided that we would go she decided, she should say, that we were going to go to Aspen. Uh, right. So I told my parents we were going to Aspen together. In the meantime, we got engaged. And then all of a sudden, both her parents and my parents said, you're not going if you're engaged. You want to go by before you're engaged, no, but you're engaged, you go if you, you get married. And we said, we are going. This was 70, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we said, we are going. You get us married in three weeks or we're going. And guess what? My sister... Got us married in three weeks with a 250-person wedding. In three wow. weeks. Honest to God. Everybody thought she was pregnant. She wasn't, but... Yeah. <laughs> and, we, and we went to Aspen on our honeymoon. So we... Uh, that was in 1970, December of 70. And in make a long story short, we bought a place here in 87, uh, a, a uh, condominium. Yeah. And then we did it up for a house in 89, and we've been here ever since. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty clear we were going to retire here. That was presumably when Aspen was achievable. That is correct. Totally changed. It's really yeah. kind of disgusting what's happened to it. Yeah. It's, it's a different place now than it was back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and you're used, I mean, obviously you still ski. Um, yeah. And uh, do you think you'll ski until you hurt yourself or will you come to a decision, I'm not going to ski anymore? Well, I've never hurt myself skiing. A decent skier. Uh, but I'm not crazy. I stopped jumping off mountains uh, uh, about three or four years ago, so I don't do that. Um, um, I think something orthopedically happens to me or yeah. I can't do it for whatever reason. If if I had a choice between golf and skiing, I would much rather play golf. Right. But I want to stay married, too, and she likes to ski, so I ski. I am... Um... I, I'm not a skier, although I can ski, um, but I don't, you know, etc. But I went to an alpine colorectal meeting a number of years ago, and everybody rushed out and went off skiing. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go skiing, but I'll just follow a little bit behind, you know, these enthusiastic expert skiers. And as I say, I can I can ski, but I'm not a good skier. So I, I, I rented this nice young lady to uh, bring me on uh, on the mountain, et cetera, et cetera. And we skied along and she was Italian. And um, we got to um, the top of what looked to me like a fairly sheer cliff. Um, and she stopped and she said, this is, uh, it's a little tricky. Um, 
She said, um, what do you think? I, <laughs> so I, I said to her, um, well, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get down there. To which she fantastically said to me, you'll be able to get down there all right. <laughs> but it wasn't quite what I had in mind. <laughs> I think she realized gravity would get me down there all right, <laughs> etc. So, um, so I, I do much safer things like race old cars, you know, etc. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, I'm not crazy. I, I realize it's inherently dangerous, but uh, we're pretty careful about what we do. I'm worried about, more worried about someone hitting me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Barry. It's been a, a distinct pleasure to uh, talk to you. And um, I hope you'll um, join in. I'll, I'm going to let everyone know when the podcasts are going live. And Please. Uh, and I will let you know, okay? In the Thanks meantime, so stay safe and well. Enjoy.